0: You are listening to The Regent College Podcast.
1: Hello, I'm Nick Corbin. And I'm Claire Perini, And welcome back to The Regent College Podcast.
0: Friends, we, today uh, we invite you to, to kind of come along on a journey of uh, conversation with uh, Sarah Augustine, who is a new new person to Nick and to me. I hadn't met Sarah before, but she's the founder and co-chair of the Coalition to Dismantle the Doctrine, Doctrine of Discovery and the Executive Director of the Dispute Resolution Centre of the Yakima and Kittitas Counties. Uh, in the states, Sarah is is Pueblo, and she's written for Sojourners, The Mennonite, and other publications. And she's an adjunct professor at Heritage University. She and her husband live in the Yakima Valley region of Washington in the states. And she's the author of this book that's entitled "The Land Is Not Empty." following Jesus in dismantling the doctrine of discovery and that's what we're talking with Sarah about today. This might be a concept that you're familiar with and maybe something that you you've never really thought about um, so Sarah helps us understand what is the doctrine of discovery and how has that manifested how is that manifests itself in the history of the United States but actually in lots of um, what's kind of called the discovered world or or the or um, yeah, Kind of mm-hmm. colonized world, I guess, essentially, and so she she sort of talks about that, and then what what uh, what is the Christian response to that, and and how are we to understand that and to sort of dismantle that as Christians?
1: Yeah, and even how it's playing out today in in real and and yeah, not good ways. And so Sarah was really helpful to bring clarity in that, and also to be a kind of a prophetic voice mm-hmm. in calling out the church and culture and institutions um in the midst of these injustices mm-hmm. so mm-hmm.
0: so friends this is this is a good and and hard conversation but we um we want you to listen to it and we hope you um that it causes you to think and lament but actually as you'll hear sarah say at the end move from lament into action so enjoy our conversation with sarah Augustine. Sarah, welcome to the Regent College podcast. Thank you. We're so glad to have you. Um, why don't Why don't you just sort of begin by giving us a little bit about your own story, a bit of a context of your own journey, and how you came to, to write the book that we're going to We're going to talk a little bit more about.
2: Sure. So, I mean, it's uh, it's challenging to know where to start, but I'll yeah. tell you that I started working with Indigenous people in the international context um, in two thousand and four, and I was on a multidisciplinary team working with indigenous people who were impacted, um, from gold mining. Mm -hmm. So I, um, I joined that work as, from my point of view, really as an assimilated person. So I, I, although, um, I've never, it's never been lost on me that I'm a person of color. Um, that's obvious, um, to the world around me, (laughs) Mm. that I am a person of color. I, I was really, um, a person in the process of of assimilation, that is to say, trying to fit in with the with the dominant culture as much mm. as possible, mm-hmm. which is the story of many people who've mm-hmm. been divided from their land and people by a diaspora right and so um, in the context of that work, I was advocating for indigenous people who were really impacted by mining, and i couldn't understand how they didn't have land rights, like what is the why why can corporate interests come in and pollute their lands and there's really nothing they can do about that. And so I, I started out sort of thinking that was in the national context and then learned over time that it's actually rooted in international law and law that that's applicable throughout what we consider the discovered world, which includes the U.S. Um, and Canada and, well, you know, the Pacific, um, Africa, I mean, just mm-hmm. the discovered world. Mm-hmm. And so And that is called the doctrine of discovery. And so that was a shocking revelation. And it was through sort of trying to figure out how do we combat this doctrine of discovery on behalf of these indigenous rainforest people who are really being decimated by resource extraction. Mm -hmm. And in friendship with them and relationship with them, I was trying to figure this out, and working together to say, gosh, what do we have to do so these people can have self-determination to determine what goes into their water and land and Mm. bodies, essentially. And so, um, and it was through that process of working with them that I was exposed to the doctrine of discovery and then really started to grapple with my own identity as an indigenous woman or as the descendant of an indigenous people would probably Mm -hmm. be a better way to say that. Yeah. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, And so,
2: yeah, through that process then, um, you know, I started doing some writing and then was invited to, uh, to submit a, a, a book proposal.
1: And so for those who may be unfamiliar with the Doctrine of Discovery, can you just share a little bit about what that is?
2: Yeah, so the Doctrine of Discovery is a body of law and policy that determines land tenure for Indigenous peoples. And when I say that, what I mean is basically every, everything – the, the entire context of life for are indigenous yeah people. and this is uh, and this is around the discovered world so so you know when I started writing this book I was really thinking about writing it as the doctrine of discovery in me to really talk about how mm. the doctrine of discovery has shaped my life um and so uh so just backing up a little bit
3: mm-hmm.
2: it was w- w- during the time of discovery the Catholic church was, was creating laws or rules really for the European states who had the technology to navigate oceans. And it was mm-hmm. saying we need to have rules about who gets to claim what, who gets to discuss, who gets to have the resources uh, as these European states are going out to try and um, gain access to land and, you know, riches and resources. And so they created um, through a series of papal bulls rules about which state would get, would get to have what. Mm. And so um, through this series of papal bulls, they determined um, some very important things uh, such as the, the first state or what they would consider to be a Christian prince, that's the way it's described, who steps onto the land and sort of plants their flag. The first one there has the first right of discovery. Mm-hmm. And anybody who's living there, if they're considered a pagan or an infidel or a sacrian, is not considered the same as as the Christian prince that's coming to there. So, so these, so this is under a, a um, an idea called Terra Nullius, which means empty land. If it's yeah. not currently ruled by a Christian prince, then it's empty of people.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And
2: so this is, in a nutshell, doctrine of discovery. So people say, oh, that happened five hundred years ago. Well, actually, it was. It was adopted by the Supreme Court in the United States Mm. and is currently the law of the land um, for land tenure in the United States Mm. um, by ruling of the Supreme Court. Right. The original ruling was in the 1820s, but it was affirmed by a ruling in 2005 that was the majority decision was affirmed by Ruth Bader Ginsburg in two thousand and five, so this is considered settled law. This is just mm. the law that whoever was the the Christian Prince who who made the first discovery. So the Supreme Court is arguing that was Britain. Um, they have the the right to to absolute title, and so then whoever gets that title after. Britain, so that would be the United States via the Revolutionary War, Mm -hmm. then they hold absolute title. So it's not in dispute. It's completely considered settled law. So that means that Indigenous peoples are um, a um, a dependent of the state Mm -hmm. and and not independent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so all Indigenous held, collectively held land is held in trust for Indigenous peoples by the federal government in the United Mm -hmm. States. This isn't just true in the United States, this is this is around the world. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. We definitely Australia I'm Australian. And so obviously, as the accent kind of, you know, indicates. Um yeah, but the same that same that concept of Terra Nullius is very familiar to me in my own kind of understanding mm-hmm. of, of Australian history as well. Um, that that was that was what was used in that context as well. Um, can you talk to us a little bit as um, sort of further about how how the church sort of sort of defended that? You, you sort of is it, you you talked a little bit about that, but at, sort of where is it rooted? Perhaps in scripture that that Christians were sort of um, yeah defending the doctrine of discovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: And this, this goes on to this day. I mean, there, there are elements of the doctrine of discovery. And when I say that, what I mean is the, the moral justification that originally the Catholic Church used right. mm-hmm. to justify why it was morally correct to seize indigenous people's lands is really pervasive throughout mainstream Christian theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and practiced by by a number of traditions. So so one of the ones that I, you know I would start with that I think is really important is this understanding of of a people who have a covenant with God. So and and I, and I want to break this down and say this is really a Christian understanding, not a Jewish understanding, although it's rooted in the Old Testament. So so the Christian read is that you know uh, Israel had a covenant with God um, to go and to uh, to uh, to take over the land of Canaan Mm -hmm. and that God had set that, that land aside for them. And anyway, they have a continuing uh, covenantal relationship with God, the creator. And then over time with the coming of Christ, that covenant is now with the church, the body of Christ. So it sort of transfers to the church. And now the church has that, that covenant with God to go and to conquer basically Land in the name of God that that God has ordained it, and mm-hmm. that this is as it should be. So in the United States, I would say this is manifest destiny. This understanding that that Christians landed on the east coast of the continent and were empowered and ordained by God to travel all the way to the west coast and to settle the entire continent. So that understanding oh. of manifest destiny, and I would also say um, uh, American exceptionalism that America is a special kind of country that is, Mm. you know, that is ordained by God to, to be the moral sort of, uh, compass and, um, and that is justification for state building and et cetera. So it's used in many contexts to justify, um, violence for sure, but then, Mm. okay. So, so then you also have this idea of Romans chapter 13, which is, um, uh, uh, the divine right of Kings or, um, divine mandate, which says mm-hmm. that, you know, Paul writes in chapter 13, that, you know, the, the authorities that, um, God has put in place, no one should oppose because if you oppose those authorities then you're opposing God, and mm-hmm. then, and then finally the great commission that, that Christians are asked to, um, you know, to, to take the gospel around the world. And so this is really, um, Operationalized in terms of empire building,
1: would you say, Sarah? Then that those are distortions of scripture; those are perverted readings of scripture.
2: I would certainly say that you know that the Great Commission being operationalized mm-hmm. to, to build empire—that's a distortion. You bet. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have a challenge in general. Uh, with the exodus story mm. um, realizing and acknowledging that many oppressed people have seen that as a story of liberation
3: yeah um, yeah doesn't
2: really feel like a liberating story from the perspective of the colonized
3: mm-hmm. right right and so
2: you know I mean one of the the ways that I've thought about that you know because I, I mean I don't I wouldn't call it a distortion I was raised to believe that that was the right thing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. These covenantal people who had the right to go and you know as as it is expressed in you know Exodus and also Deuteronomy kill basically every every living person and everything there. Um, I was raised to believe that was correct and that's sort of a linear history of you know God's people. And so, in retrospect, I see that as a cautionary tale. You know, I don't mm-hmm. really see mm-hmm. that as. Uh, something that we're empowered to go replicate Mm
3: -hmm.
2: (laughs) and I think um, I think that that justification you know from my point of view is strange but mainstream right so so, yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know I don't know if it's a distortion I wouldn't use that word because I wouldn't you know I wouldn't want to offend a huge group of people who were raised the way I was raised, but.
0: Right. But in
1: in application, then it is a distortion because in you viewing the the exodus and you even mentioned Jacob and Esau as cautionary tales um, and not as necessarily exemplars. Mm -hmm. right in order to follow. And so that's, I thought that was really helpful. Um, those cautionary tales.
0: Well, and some of the ways that you sort of hear lots of biblical scholars thinking about all all sorts of aspects of scriptures, is it, is it prescriptive or is it descriptive? You know, Mm -hmm. those are the two kinds of things. And so I wonder if there's some of that sort of at play there as well as there's a, it's, it's, that doesn't mean they therefore go and do this in, in Mm -hmm. all sorts of situations, you know, um,
2: Also, as an Anabaptist, you know, for me as an Anabaptist, um, you know, peace is um, Mm. is a core of of the faith tradition that I'm from, and you know, so placing this also as a cautionary tale, you know, in terms of of Jacob and his conflict with his brother, and then how you see that played out across the the generations, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and including you sort of culminating with Joseph, who I was raised to believe was a hero of the Bible who you know has this profound gift of dreams and uses his he uses that gift to help the pharaoh to basically become an absolute monarch like a god mm. where first the pharaoh you know based on this dream where he he foretells there's going to be a famine and so he helps the pharaoh to you know stockpile all of this food and then what do they do with that food do they give it freely to everybody no they do not so the, mm. the people of Egypt first come and say okay well we'll give you We'll give you all of our money. So the first year they get all the money and the second year they get all the land because we're going to die anyway. So we give you all our land. The third year they get, uh, they give um, themselves into slavery. Fourth year they give their children into slavery. So basically Pharaoh becomes the absolute monarch of Egypt. And then that is the mechanism that then in a generation or two enslaves Israel.
3: Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. To
2: me, that's, I I don't think that story is one that, you know, we're called to, To do, I mean, you know, basically Joseph Joseph is setting the context for capitalism, right? So he's saying, Mm -hmm. oh, here's capitalism.
1: Yeah.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this, Mm -hmm. I mean, this really plays out today in in a lot of ways. It's like the basis of a lot of Western society. And I just want to read this quote actually from your book. And this is speaking of allotments. And I'd love for you to share more about this. But this is from a U.S. senator proposing legislation. His name is Henry Lauren Dawes and uh and w- he spoke at a at a Lake Mohawk conference and he says talking about the, he says the head chief told us that there was not a family in the whole nations that had not a home of its own there was not a pauper in that nation and the nation didn't did not owe a dollar it built its own capital and it built its own schools and hospitals yet the defect of the system was apparent they've gone as far as they can because they own their land in common. And it's Henry George's system, and under that there is no enterprise to make your own home any better than that of your neighbor's. There is no selfishness, which is at the bottom of civilization. And he says, till this people will consent to give up their lands and divide among their citizens so that each can own the land he cultivates. They will make no progress. And I wanted to just take the time to read that, because that it, it's so... Appalling, somewhat, because it's kind of in your face when you look at it. When he says there is no selfishness, which is at the bottom of the civilization, and it's almost somewhat opposite in in following Jesus of like to the the almost antithesis to capitalism um, that. You're selfish, therefore you're at the bottom of your civilization. You don't have land of your own, and so I wonder, could you just talk a little bit about the allotments and why these were so harmful for Indigenous people?
2: Yeah, so in the United States, I'm just I'm just talking about this context. Uh, yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Country. Mm-hmm. yeah, so the allotment act was an act that was passed by Congress in in the 1880s, and what it did is it you know basically. There was this question that was going on within domestic policy in the U.S., how to deal with the Indian problem. The idea was if you got them on reservations, um, then that would solve the problem. But then they were they were on lands that were still coveted by people who wanted to settle. So in, in the Pacific, well, let's just say in the Oregon Territory, what was at that time described as the Oregon Territory, there were people who wanted to go and do gold prospecting. Of course, there was ag and agriculture and, you know, Lewis and Clark had come and found these, you know, basically the Columbia uh, drain, like the Columbia basin. Mm -hmm. And these were coveted lands. And so, you know, they were there were Indian reservations. And so like, what are we going to do? Because we really want that land. But there's still Indians living there. So uh, this whole idea came about that that what we really needed to do was to put Indians on allotments. So in other words, instead of them owning their homeland in common or having what we call today trust land, that it needed to be broken up and each, each individual would have their own allotment. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in the, on the reservation where I live, on the Yakima Reservation, um, the allotment, I think the size was 80 acres. So that means every individual or family gets 80 acres. And then um, whatever, you know, if there, however many people are living on that land, whatever there was left over could be sold as surplus by the federal government. So in other words, you know, the, the Yakima Nation starts off with, you know, more than a million acres. And mm. then after the Allotment Act, you know, they lost most of their land during the Allotment Act. Right. Mm. So then of course allotments could be taken by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is the agency that was set to govern Indian nations for things like practicing your own religion. You could lose your land, you could, you could lose access to um, food if you um if you carried on um typical marriage rights, if you um showed that you were not trustworthy um we have documents of uh of superintendents taking away a person's um uh, funding because mm-hmm. they had a nephew who was known to drink, so all kinds of land was lost too just through this um opportunism to to um, during the process of assimilation, yeah. expectation: Indigenous people are going to assimilate, and if they wouldn't, then their resources would be seized. And so, another really important thing that happened during the allotment act was that um, allotments were set up in a checkerboard pattern, so that you could break up contiguous um, Indigenous land. So that is yeah. to say, it would be you know there'd be an eighty or eighty um, eighty acre parcel is native, then the next one is a settler, then the next one is native, then the next one is a settler really to break up the tribe. So the the point is to force them to engage in agriculture. But imagine what it would be like if you were given an 80-acre settlement. You have no money, all of your Mm. wealth is gone, Mm. and no equipment, nothing. Like there are now on 80 acres of dry land. What does that mean? I mean, these people were river people Mm. anyway. I mean, they depended on fish. So what does it mean to have 80 Ah. acres of arid land separated from your
0: people? Yeah. Yeah. Very destructive process. Yeah.
1: Totally. Yeah, it's horrible.
0: Yeah, um, and you know that people people could be like, well, that happened a hundred years, you know, hundreds of years ago. This this isn't around today, and that's, I mean, you don't have to you don't have to look that far to realize that's that's not obviously true. But do you want to just? Could you talk to us about how the doctrine of discovery manifests itself? today i mean obviously generationally it's it's, it's had impacts obviously but also even just within kind of present kind of conversations and perhaps legislation mm-hmm. or whatever like how how does it how, how does it manifest today yeah so um
2: i would say the this the root of the doctrine of discovery is really about whether or not indigenous peoples have self-determination right. and when i say that what i mean is do you have control of your own land resources economy um, do you, you know, what self-determination do you have? Mm-hmm. And so another thing that I want to point out is that during the Allotment Act era, that's also the boarding school era. So at mm-hmm. the time that people are being divided from from their the majority of their land base, they're also divided mm-hmm. from their families. So you've got children mm-hmm. going to boarding schools. Many people also don't realize that boarding schools, at least in the U.S., went on until the 1970s. So mm-hmm. there were boarding schools until the 1970s. So people... Yeah not uncommon uh, for people to return home and not be able to speak to their parents because they, were, they didn't know their own native language.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so, uh, and the goal there, of course, is to make sure that native languages were not spoken and just to eradicate it and make
3: mm-hmm. sure English.
2: Mm-hmm. And so what happened is that, um, you know, this whole doctrine of discovery was created to remove indigenous peoples from their lands. That's the goal of it. And shortly after the boarding school era, you've got um, this massive move in the United States to put children in foster care. So um, at 1975, uh, when the Indian Child Welfare Act passed in the United States, one in four indigenous children were living in a a white foster home.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: One in four, imagine that. And so, you know, so, you know, many indigenous children were swept up in this effort and moved, uh, uh, urbanized, um, put in placements. So, so let me, I want to just break this down even further and say, mm-hmm. when you're removed from your land, it's not like, oh my gosh, that's so sad. I like that house and now it's gone. No, mm-hmm. it's the entire access yeah. to right. livelihood and economy. So it's basically yeah. all the wealth that you have is taken away from you. So mm-hmm. I think of it as, I mean, if you wanted to look at something that's similar, it, it would be, you know, internment, you know, putting people in internment camps, taking away everything that they have, and then expecting them to compete in the open market. Yeah. What are the impacts of that? The yeah. Economic impacts are profound uh-huh. um, because, you know, um, there, is, there is just very little opportunity to re- recoup those losses. And so uh-huh. what happens is that... Um, you know, you have a people who are um, who are impoverished, and I'm not saying that all Native American people are poor. That's not what I'm saying. I'm mm. talking about no. stripped of resources, yeah. and mm. then expected to survive and to thrive
3: mm-hmm. in the
2: world. You know, something else I'll tell you is that in the United States, most wealth is accumulated over generations of time. We have this kind of myth that people, you know, you go out and if you work hard, you make it big and you'll, you know, you'll make it. Right. In mm-hmm. fact, most wealth is transferred in small sums over generations. Yeah.
3: So yeah. The
2: way that wealth is transferred most commonly in the United States is through parents paying for their children's higher education
3: mm-hmm. and
2: through helping with the down payment with the home. Those are the two most common ways that wealth is transferred. Yeah. Because when you transfer that kind of wealth, you're avoiding debt. Yeah. And then you're also giving access to real property, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: When you decimate an entire community, these pathways for wealth mm-hmm. accumulation are eradicated, yeah. right? There's yeah. absolutely no way to accumulate wealth. Yeah. Then you take that and you say, in the indigenous context on reservations, all of that land presumably is native land, but it isn't. It's owned, most of it is owned by white settlers. Mm-hmm. And for, those, for the land that it is retained in common, that is managed by the federal government mm. right. because uh, Indian nations are dependents of the government. They do not have the right to manage mm-hmm. their own land without mm-hmm. the, of the federal government. So, so the way it impacts Native people today is in every way, mm-hmm. in every way. So Native American people continue to be most likely to be incarcerated, yeah. least likely to be a homeowner. Least likely to graduate from high school. Um, across every indicator, Native American people are, um, are denied access to justice and denied access to, um, to full inclusion as a result of the doctrine of discovery.
3: Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
2: so it's kind of hard because you know, when you talk about things, most of us, you know, coming from an individualistic society. Yeah want to break it down to the individual when these yeah. are structural
3: yeah. causes yeah. right and so mm-hmm. that, so, mm-hmm.
2: so the way it's played out is in um social structures
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah i don't know
2: if and, that sounds too abstract
0: but no 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 it doesn't mm-hmm. at all it's it's very helpful and it's mm-hmm. that, that that story is similar here in in the canadian context in the sense of the residential schools the last one was closed in 19 in the nine, 1990s right and so um and so, so and then the same the sort of overrepresentation in foster care situations all of those so lots of those lots of those things that you're speaking about are uh, they're very real and very present mm-hmm. they sort of they they sort of look different but they're actually not different like it's it's the yeah so that's it's a very similar situation
1: here at least yeah. so with these atrocities these horrible things that have been done um recently here in Canada and I know many other nations are taking steps um for reparations, as well as like remembering, as well as sharing, we recently here in Canada had a Truth and Reconciliation Day federal holiday. We had prayer services, we had testimony shared, and and people were moved. Um, but is it enough just to remember? Like, is it is it enough just to lament?
2: Yeah. Thanks for that question. So you know, I I wrote an essay not long ago um, uh, that was titled. Bearing witness is not enough, because in mm-hmm. my tradition, that's what we say. Oh, we're going to go and bear witness. It's like, yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. You know I, What I, I mean, I th- the way I try and think about this is that the, 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 the systems that created dead bodies in unmarked graves and residential and sy- residential school grounds is the same system that's in place today, the same mm-hmm. it has not changed. The way that it manifests itself has changed, but that yeah. system is the same. It is in place. Those laws remain the laws, mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, lamenting it is is perhaps what people need to do to 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 move from inaction to action. Mm. But lament is not action. It is lament. Mm-hmm. That's that's what it is. It mm-hmm. serves the person lamenting. It right. does mm-hmm. nothing for the people <laughs> that are yeah. actually suffering under structural violence. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and, and I want to give you an example of this because I think it's, I think it's really important. And mm. I'm one of these people, uh, I am, I am the person I think, uh, in this discourse that keeps saying to the church, your good intentions are meaningless. Mm. They mean, nothing, um, your, your prayers and fasting, your ta- renting of your clothes. Who cares? You know, it's, that is not what mm. it's about, you know, and, and, you know, so if we were in, in a world today where we the three of us were alive and slavery were the, the structural basis of mm. the economy, would lamenting end slavery? Mm. We all said, Oh, we're so sorry you guys are slaves. That sucks for you. I mean, that's right. that's yeah. what lament is. Right. It's, you can say, yeah, gosh, I'm so sorry. That's sad. I'm, yeah. Wish, uh, wish you weren't a slave. Um, good luck in your struggle. I mean, or you could actually dismantle the system of slavery. Right. Right. Because that mm-hmm. is an institution, just like the doctrine of discovery is an institution. It has to be dismantled. Mm-hmm. And when I say that, what I mean by that is the laws and policies that are in place now have to be dismantled yeah. because they're destructive and violent. And they were created to be destructive and violent and they remain destructive and violent. And so. You know, Isaiah fifty eight says, "If you want to be in good relationship with me, Mm -hmm. this is God talking to His people. You will break the yoke of injustice, Mm -hmm. and then if you break the yoke of invested you injustice, you will be called the repairs of the breach. Mm
3: -hmm. You
2: will be the light for all generations." But earlier in the, in the chapter, it says if you're not willing to do that, then your, your, your feast days are meaningless. To yeah. You. Mm-hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I mean, I think another thing I want to say about this is that indigenous mm-hmm. peoples. I consider vulnerable peoples. And so I'm not necessarily saying every individual. I'm talking yeah. about, um, mm-hmm. structurally and Right. Are vulnerable the right. people who are who are dealing with the greatest environmental injustice? Reservations are the or reserves are the places where most of the dumping goes on, where you have the most contamination. They're facing um, you know mm-hmm. basically oppression in every system, mm-hmm. and these are the people who are out on the front line advocating for the preservation of water, yeah, soil and air. They are the ones that are out there you know, saying on behalf of all of humanity and all of life, we have to preserve the fidelity of our waters, the yes. most vulnerable people. And so my question is, is often to the church, where are you? Where are you? Are you going to stand up and say, we have to protect the fidelity of our water? Why? Because we're dependent on it. You know, where I live among the Yakima people, you know, they drink water before every meal and say, shush, which means water, because water is life. Water is life. We are all life is dependent upon it. And who is struggling for that? Indigenous people are struggling for that.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: so, so if, you, if, if as churches lament, mm. that is perhaps a pathway to the loosening of the hardness of hearts. Mm. Yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah. But that's
2: not the whole story. Then right. you have to actually go do the right thing, which mm-hmm. for me is standing shoulder to shoulder with indigenous peoples who are struggling for mm. life and the systems of life, not just for themselves, but for all people, all mm-hmm. of humans.
3: Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: Thanks, Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> keep keep saying those things. That's just like, yeah, we it's a... Uh, I so we're yeah. not a rant there. I love it. No, that's what I was that's what I'm like. Don't stop. No, no. Um Sarah, a uh, Cree leader, is it Stan Mackay or Stan McKay? Australians would say Stan Mackay. That's, what I've always, that's one of those acts and things. He, he said, we don't need help. We need relatives. Do you want to talk to us? What did he mean by this? And why, was that, why did that impact you so much?
2: Yeah, and I think, I think as, as the church sort of animates towards action, um, what is frequent is this opportunity, seen as an opportunity for charity. So, yeah. charity is, a, yeah. is, um, is aid that is given with the intention of retaining power imbalance, mm-hmm. where one party is in power over the other. And so, Stan is responding from my point of view. I mean, I, we'd have to talk to him. I think um, mm-hmm. it, my read of that is that um, reinforcing power imbalance is not, um, it's not. Consistent with the life and witness of Jesus, Mm
3: -hmm. and
2: so um, this idea of "well, I'm going to come and help you" um, denies the reality that we all together live in a closed system, and that within that closed system, um, the 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 life support systems for all of us are in danger.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And you know, as, as your life support systems are in danger believing that you know for for people in the church to believe that they're in a privileged position to go and provide temporary mm-hmm. and um, transactional charity is that is a meaningless um, idea what mm-hmm. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but is needed is actual um, acknowledgement of reality which is that yeah. we are interdependent yep and that we live in a closed system. We are independent, interdependent in a closed system. Mm-hmm. And so, what we need are relatives. That is to say, other people to 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 acknowledge reality as it is. That mm-hmm. this struggle for indigenous people is the struggle for life. Yeah, mm-hmm. the struggle right. for us all. And so, you know, it, it, um, during the Idle No More movement. It was so amazing to me to acknowledge that in Canada, nearly every body of fresh water was taken out of environmental protection. Um, Amazing, right? Mm -hmm. How can that happen? Mm -hmm.
3: It's
2: totally amazing. Mm -hmm. And and who was struggling to prevent that from happening? Indigenous peoples. And my question at that time is, where is the church? I mean, right, is right. the church, a body of moral authority. Is this, in fact, the the mm-hmm. body of Christ? We're yeah. not, you know. I mean, and so, um, so for me, I think that's where that's what my read on where Stan is coming from in yeah. terms of relatives. We are mutually yeah. dependent the system.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sarah, I'm amazed that your your faith and and your passion and in your book, you you talk about a faith at a faith gathering. An indigenous leader asked you though. Uh, how can you be a be a well? He said, "Indian, indigenous person, and a Christian." After everything that's been done to you, after everything's been done to us, is what he said.
2: Yeah, and I he just, he himself was an indigenous person, mm-hmm. yeah. and so um, you know, I want to talk about using the word Indian, which I've done several times during this. Mm-hmm. Um, conversation. It is still the legal description of native peoples in the United States. So Mm -hmm. when I use that word, (laughs) it is in the context of, you know, it remains the legal term Um, in the U S. So, so I am sorry if I, um, if that's insensitive to some of your listeners. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think it's a really valid question. This, this man asked me this, um, you know, uh, Himself not claiming to be a Christian, and and really asked, how can you? Yeah. How can you be? Yeah. be a Christian. What did you say? Well, yeah. I mean, so, <laughs> so you know, my relationship with with Jesus, I don't know how to say it any other way, is real. I mean, it's a real yeah. relationship, mm-hmm. and it's from the very beginning of my life. And that presence in my life, the Spirit of life, is real, and it animates and motivates my whole life, everything, uh-huh. and. The name of that that spirit, that animating spirit, the, the, um, the creator and the great unknown, that's uh-huh. Jesus, right? So for me, uh-huh. that. So, um, and, you know, Jesus in the book of Luke speaks his mandate from from the book of Isaiah and says the spirit of God is upon me to bring, preach good news to the poor. Um, And he lists what that mandate is. Yeah, that mandate is um, (laughs) freedom for the oppressed and release for the prisoner and sight for the blind and Jubilee. Right. year of Mm -hmm. our Lord's favor. Mm
3: -hmm. So he's
2: he's claiming all of that. He's saying, I am, you know, today and this day, um, this prophecy has been fulfilled. He is himself um, stating that mandate and putting on that mantle and saying, this is me and this is who I am. And that is the Jesus that I follow,
3: the mm-hmm. only one. And so, mm-hmm.
2: I mean, you know, I'm regardless of what others have done since then. Mm. Um, that is the Lord that I know and trust and believe and follow. Mm-hmm. And so that you know, my my allegiance is there. And so, you know, uh, as an Anabaptist, I don't um, pledge allegiance to a nation mm-hmm. or to, to anything other than that one, that one. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that's how, uh, that's how I would describe, you know, my Christianity.
3: Yeah. Uh, yeah.
2: And that doesn't negate my own indigenous spirituality. No.
3: Right.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, if there was like a mic drop kind of moment, like if, you know, if you, if you were holding onto a mic, Sarah, then that would have been the, that would have been the moment when you just like drop the mic. And yeah. walk away. Um, uh. <laughs> that was, thank you so much for, um, for spending time with us and for mm-hmm. just helping unpack um, this really complex history and yet, It's, it's, it's complex and it's not complex in many ways. And then it's, it's outworking and the church's response to that. Um, And so it's just been so, so great to, to meet you for for the first uh, part, but also just to, to be with you. So thank you for your time and thanks Mm for, for, for being willing to, to speak with us.
2: You bet. So good to meet you. Thanks for your time and thank you for your interest and for, um, yeah, for helping to have this conversation. Yeah.
1: Yes, of course. It was wonderful.
2: Yeah.
0: Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for listening to the Regent College podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit rgnt.net. That is rgnt.net.